0: This episode of How the West Was Cast is brought to you in part by Fistful of Bourbon, the bourbon of choice for Western movie fans with good taste. From the 2018 Master Distillers of the Year comes a bold new American whiskey and fistful of bourbon. Their whiskeys have been award winning for generations. Now they're going all in on bourbon, blending five straight whiskeys to create a big balanced bourbon that stands apart from everything else. So grab yourself a fistful of bourbon, a blend of five bourbons created with over 100 years of whiskey blending experience. It ain't just a bourbon, it's a damn fistful. Please enjoy responsibly. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to
1: the best of the Western movie genre. He wanted to save a friend. She wanted a world of obedient killer zombies.
0: Jesse James will kill us for what you're doing.
1: Jesse James will be caught and hanged in Shelby. Her fiendish Frankenstein monster stalks the West's most fearless outlaw. Save your strength, Jesse James. You will need it.
0: That was the trailer to Jesse James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter, a Western horror film made in 1966. And on this special episode of How the West Was Cast, we'll discuss some of our favorite weird Westerns and what makes them so scary. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, And I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film
1: historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, if you
0: enjoy this episode, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast. All one word. Tell us about some of your favorite horror westerns or suggest another topic that you'd like us to cover on a future show. Okay then. Andrew, you've given some thought to the cinematic renaissance that audiences have been treated to lately when it comes to mashups between horror films and westerns. So tell us about that.
1: The past decade or so has seen a discernible uptick in interest in movies and other media that exist at the intersection of the western and horror genres. This interest has corresponded, roughly, with an increase in the production of these types of works. If you look at the tables of contents of recent academic books like Undead in the West or Weird Westerns, you'll find that, with some exceptions, the majority of the movies under investigation were produced over the past 20-odd years. Online lists and articles about horror westerns have the same bias towards movies from the 1990s onward. Whether set in the contemporary or Old West, a growing number of movies have demonstrated the compatibility of horror tropes and monsters with conventional Western stories and settings. Mysterious strangers, entire towns under the grip of despotic villains, men driven to madness by the ravages of nature and isolation, warnings and prophecies from Native American folklore, the horrific undertones of these and other venerable Western conventions have been brought to the surface in a range of recent films. Yet horror Westerns, or even Westerns with conventional horror elements like The Presence or even Hint of the Supernatural were conspicuously absent when the Western's popularity was at its peak from the late nineteen forties to the early nineteen sixties. Given the conventions I just mentioned, along with the strong psychosexual subtext of many Westerns of the nineteen fifties in particular, we may fairly wonder why so few Westerns of the genre's classic period stepped over the line into outright horror. One answer is that the Western's heyday overlapped with a decade-long hibernation of the horror genre that followed the Second World War. As many critics have observed, the monsters that so terrified pre-war audiences – Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, and so on – had, by the end of the 1940s, been reduced to jokes, a transformation exemplified by the smash success of the parody Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948. The most lauded horror films of the 1940s, the cycle of movies produced by Val Lewton at RKO that included Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie, eschewed larger-than-life monsters in favor of suggestive horror effects and psychological atmosphere, but even these began to lose their hold on audiences by the close of the decade. In horror's place, the science fiction film rose to prominence in the 1950s as the genre key to the anxieties of the age. These included the threat of atomic weapons and the potential infiltration of the United States by alien forces. The horror movie's reemergence over the course of the 1960s, coincided with the start of the Western's wane as a popular genre. As a genre loses its hold on the popular culture, and as our collective understanding of the genre becomes looser and much more basic, the genre itself becomes more malleable and adaptable to new generic contexts. Experimentation with genres often first takes place in more niche realms where the stakes are lower and audiences are more accustomed to creative combinations of different stories and forms. One of the first places this began to happen with Westerns and horror was in the 1970s, in the seminal Marvel comic series Weird Western Tales, which gave us the character Jonah Hex. While the attempt in 2010 to bring Hex to the big screen failed, the ascension of the horror Western follows the trend that we discussed in our episode on The Legend of the Lone Ranger, where what was once niche culture for children is now mass culture for all ages. Or, as famed comic book writer Alan Moore put it in a recent rare interview, thousands of adults are queuing up to see characters that were created 50 years ago to entertain 12-year-old boys. What could be more frightening than that?
0: Now, for this episode, we've each selected three horror westerns that we think are well worth recommending. Some of these films are available on streaming platforms like Amazon and YouTube, so if they sound interesting, by all means, check them out and let us know what you think. Okay, Andrew, what's your first horror western? My first film is
1: Teenage Monster from 1958, an independent film produced and directed, reluctantly. By Jacques R. Marquette. Marquette was a cinematographer who founded his own production company in the late 50s to cash in on the craze for teen pics, films purposely designed to appeal to America's emerging teenage audience. Teenage Monster was a rushed production, intended to fill out the second half of a double bill with another Marquette production, The Brain from Planet Arus. When Teenage Monster's director backed out at the last moment, Marquette stepped in making it the only directing credit in his 30-year career. On a fateful day in June 1880, in a remote mining section of the Old West, a mysterious object fell from the sky which changed the lives and destiny of that small community. So reads the movie's opening title, Crawl. The mysterious object is a meteor which mutates young Charles Cannon into the teenage monster of the title, a hulking hairy brute with the mind of a child, played by 50-year-old actor and stuntman Gilbert Perkins. Charles's mother, Ruth, tries to hide him away from the citizens of the nearby town, only for Charles to repeatedly escape and, well, kill people. Charles then finds himself torn between his mother and the manipulative Kathy, a young woman who exploits Charles' tangled affections to her own nefarious ends. Visually, the Jack Pierce-designed teenage monster— is a confusing combination of Frankenstein's monster and the wolfman, and this confusion extends to the monster's characterization. Charles is alternately, or inconsistently, a pea-brained innocent and a vicious killing machine. The film never decides how we're supposed to feel about the monster, but, to be honest, this is just one of the movie's many loose threads. Trying her best to hold everything together is Anne Gwynn as the monster's mother, Ruth. Gwynne was a contract player at Universal in the 1940s, where she starred in a range of genre movies, including opposite the likes of Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, and Lon Chaney Jr. in horror pictures like Black Friday, The Black Cat, and The House of Frankenstein. Here, Gwynne delivers a committed, sincere performance as a woman who has sacrificed her own life and happiness in an increasingly futile attempt to shelter her abominable boy from the outside world. The other performances in Teenage Monster are also quite good. Movies like this are a reminder of the surplus of talent in Hollywood in the 1950s. In the end, Teenage Monster is good for a few campy laughs, but it's also an instructive example of the fundamental incongruities between the Western and trends in horror filmmaking in the 1950s. While many Westerns of the decade successfully incorporated teenage subject matter, actor Robert Wagner's Westerns like White Feather and The True Story of Jesse James are among the best examples. A Western with an irradiated teenage monster? Well, that was clearly a bridge too far. Wow.
0: I'm not sure if you actually got across how insane this movie is. <laughs> um, I mean, that's why I love it. It's one of the weirdest mashups on the show. I mean, there really were a ton of teenage movies out there at the same time, so I can see why they went with this title that makes almost no sense when you see the actual monster. And you had Roger Corman's Teenage Caveman, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, Teenage Frankenstein. Then there were Teenage Zombies. And my favorite was Teenagers from Outer Space. That was a really good one. And they were all released within like two or three years of each other. So this was a popular fad at the time. The only difference was that those films featured actual teenagers and not just like a middle-aged stuntman in a wig. So, I mean, this <laughs> lacks the authenticity of those movies, but it's great.
1: Yeah, maybe I did understate it to to a certain degree. I think when you know the background, it's pretty evident when you watch the movie how this really was slapped together at the last minute. Uh, and as I said, there are so many things happening that the film barely manages to contain them with a, a final climactic cliffside shootout. Which I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but let's just say that death solves all of the film's problems for all but two of the characters. Uh, The other really strange thing about the movie, which you had mentioned in an email to me, (laughs) is the monster's voice.
0: Oh, my God. It's so bizarre. It's like whoever decided that the teenage monster should have this whimpering voice that's totally dubbed in. He sounds like a blithering idiot the entire time, but everybody communicates with him like they know exactly what he's saying it's such a weird choice. It's like watching somebody have a conversation with a toddler and they're <laughs> both communicating with each other. It's like you wonder, are these other characters fluent in gibberish or, or what is it? But uh, it's a great part of the film.
1: It is. So yeah, wh- what can I say? If, if you've got 65 minutes to spare and a little bit of time on the internet, Teenage Monster still exists. It still looks really good and probably – tells us more than anyone who made it could have possibly imagined about filmmaking in the 1950s.
0: I don't know about you, but I was a little disappointed that we didn't get more scenes set in the gold mine. They introduced this kind of rickety gold mine early on, and then they kind of abandon it. We don't really go back there other than to get some gold. I I was expecting when they introed that, that half the movie would be set in these mine sets where people are just wandering around. It would have been such an inexpensive way to shoot it. But they they went for an actual movie movie set on a Western lot. So it's – I mean, in a way, it's better this way.
1: Yeah, it was filmed at the Iverson Ranch. So it makes use of Western sets that would have been familiar to both movie and television audiences of that time. You know, I agree with you that uh, my mind actually went to a similar space where there'd be some kind of labyrinthine climax and the monster would be familiar with the mind and would know his way around. And that's a separate movie, let's say. They go much more conventional Western in in many respects towards the end of Teenage Monster. happened? The whole town seems deserted.
0: That monster's on the loose right here in town. Anybody get, catch sight of this thing? Well, a few kids playing in the street said he was 20 feet tall, covered with long hair, and had great big teeth. Behind these empty streets, these windows shut in fear,
1: lies the strange story of a young girl who knows the secret of the Teenage Monster.
0: Fascinated by an evil demon, unable to control her sinister desires, she leads the monster to his prey, sacrificing an entire town to his insatiable lust for human life. I saw him, the monster, he ran away from this barn carrying the girl. A posse in panic, not knowing what they'll find. Man, beast, or demon from another world, as they pursue the loathsome killing thing they call the teenage monster.
1: Okay, Matt, that's my first pick for this
0: Halloween season. What is your first horror western? My first selection is Black Noon, a made-for-TV movie that aired in 1971 as part of the CBS Friday Night Movie series. The film was directed by Bernard Kowalski, who was no stranger to TV westerns, having worked for years on shows like Gunsmoke, Rawhide, and The Rifleman, to name just a few. Black Noon's writer Andrew Fennedy was equally experienced, having written for shows like Branded and Hondo, as well as co-creating the TV series The Rebel with actor Nick Adams. Fennedy's most famous Western credit, however, is John Wayne's 1970 film Chisholm, which he both wrote and produced. Black Noon tells the story of Reverend John Keyes, played by Roy Thinnes, who, along with his wife Lorna, played by Thinnes' real wife Lynn Loring, finds himself stranded in the desert when their covered wagon breaks down. Just as they're about to die of thirst and exposure, they're saved by a trio of townspeople from the nearby community of San Melis, who just happen to be passing by. Since the town's former preacher died when their church burned down, Reverend Keys and Lorna decide to join the citizens of San Melis and help them rebuild the church and start anew. But Lorna takes ill, and Keyes begins having vivid nightmares about a bloody figure reaching out to him from his bedroom mirror. As if that wasn't bad enough, a gunslinger named Moon starts terrorizing the town, and it soon becomes apparent that sinister forces are at work in San Melis. The cast of Black Noon is filled with familiar faces from the 1970s, including Ray Milland, Yvette Mimieux, Henry Silva, and a 10-year-old Leif Garrett. The film also co-stars beloved Western character actor Hank Warden, who was a regular member of John Wayne's stock company of players and had been acting in the Western genre since 1935. Now, Black Noon is not one of the great horror Westerns. It's an extremely low-budget movie, even by TV standards at the time, and to call it slow-paced would be quite generous. But I first saw it as a rerun in the late 70s, when I was about 10 years old. And let me tell you, it scared the hell out of me at the time. It was part of a cycle of satanic horror films that were released in the wake of Rosemary's Baby. These were movies loaded with occult symbolism and weird rituals. It's also a prime example of the popular made-for-TV horror movies, which were a staple of the 70s. Films like Crowhaven Farm, The Initiation of Sarah, and The Dark Secret of Harvest Home brought terror into viewers' living rooms on a near-weekly basis. In some ways, made-for-TV horror movies were just plain scarier than the average theatrical films of the time. Although they lacked special effects and were interrupted by commercials, they exuded a foreboding menace and gave nightmares to generations of kids like me who grew up watching them. Revisiting the film today, one of the things I like most about it is that it subverts the familiar Western trope of the fire-and-brimstone preacher. The movie takes that cliché and turns it upside down, quite literally, in fact, when you think about the gruesome ending. And speaking of that ending, at the risk of giving it all away, I'd just like to point out that Black Noon was released two years before Robin Hardy's groundbreaking classic, The Wicker Man. Not too bad for a long forgotten TV movie. The satanic
1: panic goes west in Black Noon, a film that I had not seen. Uh, I have to confess that the television Western, especially TV movies of the 70s and 80s, is something of a blind spot of mine. and I don't think I'm alone as a quote-unquote scholar of the Western who doesn't know as much as he should about the way that the Western continues to develop on television in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so this is a fascinating historical document for a number of reasons. One, again, that that satanic panic and just how how bleak of a message this film ultimately conveys about the nature of satanic worship. There's really no hope even for the religious, which is really quite striking. You mentioned how this is a a take on a really venerable conventional horror narrative. I think it's also an interesting inversion of the stranger comes to town narrative, which is a common one in the Western too, where normally we adopt the perspective of the townspeople who see the stranger come in. It's actually the really odd Western where we adopt the perspective of the strangers as they come into the town and try to learn the town's secret. One thing I really liked about this movie was how surprisingly effective of a job it does of concealing its ultimate twist until the very end of the movie. I thought pacing and and concealing that twist was really effectively done. It was really impactful. I didn't see it coming in the way that the movie ends.
0: On one of our previous episodes, you talked about the various depictions of the town in Western genres, and how novel it was in the 1950s for the town to be depicted as corrupt or cowardly, and how overused that became then in the 60s and 70s. Well, this film definitely takes that concept to the next level.
1: I agree. And another thing that I found really interesting about this movie is the way that it presents an idea that I think recurs not only in a lot of horror Westerns, but in a a lot of Westerns set in the contemporary moment. And that's this notion that there are elements from the old West that persist and end up haunting the West up to the present day. So spoiler alert, this, this film's ending flashes forward to 1970, where a couple's station wagon has broken down, And don't the same three people from the beginning of the movie pull up in a pickup truck to offer assistance? And then we get this really great final shot from the rear view mirror that I I won't give away. But, But that notion that there are these things from the old West that continue to haunt us today, I think recurs in most of the movies we're going to talk about today, but also a lot of thinking about the American West in general. You know, the, the other thing I, I might mention to you is, as uh, some of our listeners may know, and as you may know, uh, Andrew J. Fenity kind of transitioned to being a novelist towards the end of his career. He's still alive. And he, uh, it turns out, actually in 2015 released a novelization of Black Noon, which I, I have not read. I don't think you've read. Wow, I've
0: never heard of that.
1: Right. So I just found that out. So if, if anyone really liked this movie, that would be the next place for uh, for, for us to go. Tonight, one of the screen's most terrifying dramas on the CBS Friday Night Movies.
0: Okay, Andrew, and what is your second horror western?
1: My second film is Ghost Town from 1988. It won't surprise listeners to learn that I spent a lot of my youth in my local video store. And like many adolescent boys, as I wandered aisle upon aisle lined with styrofoam-filled VHS cassette tape boxes, I was always drawn to the forbidden titles. And not those forbidden titles, Those were kept in a separate room, divided by a (laughs) curtain and a large sign, prohibiting anyone under the age of 18 from entering. The titles I'm referring to were horror movies, whose tantalizingly terrifying cover art offered hints of gruesome and grisly sights, suitable only for mature audiences. To this day, the art for two titles remains etched in my memory. One was the box for 1980s Halloween Two with its menacing skull superimposed on a large pumpkin. The other was the box for Ghost Town. The artwork depicts a skeleton gunslinger standing at the edge of a desolate western town. Wearing boots, chaps, a red bandana, and a black hat, the skeleton stands with its hands near two pistols, ready to draw on the unsuspecting moviegoer. It is a supremely evocative image, a near-perfect iconographic synthesis of two genres, highlighting how a subtext of violence and decay and death lies uneasily near the heart of our collective fascination with the mythical West. Yet, this amazing artwork proves to be false advertising. Skeletal Ray Harryhausen style gunslingers are sadly nowhere to be found in ghost town. Now, such creative license is certainly not unique when it comes to the advertising for low- to mid-budget 80s horror films. The poster for Jim Winorski's Chopping Mall, where a robotic hand holds a shopping bag full of dismembered body parts, is another famous example. But you can still understand my great disappointment when I was finally able to see the movie as a teenager. In place of a posse of skeleton shootists was a posse of lightly zombified cowboys, lording over an Old West town trapped in a ghostly netherworld thanks to a pact with Satan made by the gang's leader, Devlin. Or maybe thanks to a curse placed on the town by its crucified sheriff. Or both? It's all a little (laughs) unclear. Unto this comes our hero, Deputy Sheriff Langley. He's in pursuit of wild child Kate, who has left her fiancé at the altar and sped away in her convertible into the Arizona desert, only to be kidnapped by Devlin. It's up to Langley to rescue Kate, defeat Devlin and his gang, and free the town from its century-long curse, and have some good old-fashioned ghost sex. I have revisited Ghost Town many times since its Scream Factory Blu-ray release in 2015, and have come to genuinely love this movie. It was one of the final productions of Charles Band's Empire International Pictures, the studio that gave us cult hits like Trancers, The Dungeon Master, Reanimator ghoulies, and robot jocks. Ghost Town certainly bears the hallmarks of many Empire releases, a novel take on an otherwise derivative premise, game performances, the beautiful cinematography of Swede Mac Alberg, and a frustratingly underdeveloped story and characters. Whether because of cost-conscious editing or scripts that were being written as the movies were shot or both, World building was seldom an Empire picture strength. The production of Ghost Town was, by most accounts, a chaotic race against time to finish production before Empire ran out of money. That it comes together as well as it does is impressive. Ghost Town may not live up to the promise of its truly awesome poster art, but the movie is still, to my mind, one of the most interesting and certainly one of the most enjoyable amalgams of horror and the Western.
0: This movie is a gem. It's just waiting to be rediscovered. It it feels to me like a much bigger budget, like Joe Dante style fantasy film. It It's that good. It knows exactly what it wants to be. And it delivers again and again in really fun, interesting, charming ways, which is more than you can say for a lot of the sophisticated horror films of that decade. And the acting is, is pretty good here. Jimmy Skaggs, who plays Devlin, I think does an excellent job. He really enjoys hamming it up beneath all that makeup. He's got a great wicked, evil laugh that's right out of a Vincent Price movie. But for me, I think the big acting surprise is Frank Luz, who plays Sheriff Langley. That's a thankless role in a movie like this. It's usually the most boring part of the film. but. He kind of holds it all together. He seems like a real guy, um, which really works in this film. It, it, it's kind of delightful. Yeah, you know, we're introduced to him.
1: Actually, we're not introduced to him so much as his ability with a firearm at first. He's in a junkyard shooting at random things that just happen to be expertly arranged for target practice. And He does come across as, as both in, in, supremely skilled, but also a down-to-earth ordinary guy whose boss is chewing him out, who's given a thankless task. So the film does a great job of establishing his character. You're absolutely right that this is a thankless job, being straight man to an army of ghosts, many of whom are going to have better lines than you, and also having to play opposite of you know a bevy of beautiful women, as was common in most genre pictures in the 1980s.
0: But he does a terrific job in this particular film. We also get a welcome cameo from legendary character actor Bruce Glover, who – I love for his role as Mr. Wint in the Bond classic Diamonds Are Forever. He's got those great white cataract eyes. Any movie that puts contacts in somebody's eyes just to give them that ghostly white image yeah. is, earns my respect right away. Just like everything about it is just better than it ever needed to be. And that includes Harvey Cohen's score, which is really big and orchestral and adds so much old school grandeur to this low budget film. This was Cohen's first time composing a film score, but he had spent years before that providing orchestration for really big, large budget horror movies like The Omen and Cujo. I feel like he took everything he learned on those projects and put it to great use in Ghost Town. It's
1: the total film, the total package in in many respects. The, The cinematography, as I've said, really, really elevates it. It's shot in old Tucson, so the the sets are very good. But they're given a nice treatment: lots of dust, lots of cobwebs, lots of extra sand. It really is a, an atmospheric film that has very few moments that say you know compromise its, its overall believability. I agree with you. It's just it's just a gem waiting to be rediscovered, and it's unfortunate that the the Blu-ray, as far as I know now, is out of print. It seems like the perfect movie for a much more, um, let's say, special edition treatment. So, you know, Shout Factory, if you're listening, we're available. You want me, lawman?
0: Outside in the street.
1: 20th century law
0: enforcement meets
1: the Wild West. In a place where law is a forgotten word. Ghost
0: town. The long arm of the law
1: is about to reach out across 100 years.
0: Ghost Town. My second film is The Borrowers. Released on video in 2009, the film was written and directed by J.T. Petty, and it stars Carl Geary and William Maypother, as well as genre favorites Clancy Brown and Doug Hutchison. Set in the Dakota territories in 1879, The Borrowers tells the story of a small posse of men who set out to track down a family of settlers who've mysteriously vanished from their home in what's believed to be a violent Indian attack. Yet what this group of searchers quickly discovers is that marauding Indians are the least of their worries. Instead, they encounter a bizarre race of subterranean creatures who hunt their prey from beneath the earth. Now, I first became aware of director J.T. Petty back in 2001 when his debut film, Soft for Digging, made a lot of noise on the horror festival circuit. Shot on a budget of only $6,000, Petty managed to craft a quietly haunting ghost story about an old man who witnesses a child being murdered. He followed up that film with a project that, at least on paper, had very little going for it. I'm speaking, of course, about Mimic Sentinel, the third entry in the largely forgotten Mimic franchise. Against all odds, Petty somehow managed to turn this direct-to-video sequel into a surprisingly original and wonderfully gory combination of Alfred Hitchcock and David Cronenberg. Petty's next film was equally unusual. Titled Sandman, it was a micro-budget horror documentary that purposely blurred the line between truth and fiction. Although barely released anywhere and still quite difficult to find today, it's well worth tracking down for its extremely disturbing content. Which brings us to Petty's fourth film, The Burrowers. Shot by expert cinematographer Phil Parmit, who lends The Devil's Rejects and Halloween for Rob Zombie, The Burrowers is a beautiful movie filled with sweeping, wide-angle shots of the sun-drenched New Mexico landscape. The movie opens with an attack scene on a small farmhouse that is jarringly intense. Much of the horror in this sequence takes place just off-screen, as the terrified family hide from the borrowers. On a previous episode, we talked about the way that the traumatic assault on the family home in The Searchers became a common feature in Westerns, and this nightmarish attack scene in The Borrowers owes a similar debt to that John Ford classic. Although this is clearly a monster movie, the film's acting and writing somehow feels natural and understated. That's especially true when it comes to the film's Indian characters, who are depicted with a surprising degree of nuance here. We meet several different types of Indians in this film, and none are simply good or bad. Quite the opposite, in fact. As for the borrowers themselves, I think they're handled really well here. We often glimpse them hidden in the background of shots at night, obscured in shadow or just out of focus. It makes us lean in to try to see them better, which Petty then uses against us in a series of expertly timed jump scares. I also love the eerie holes in the ground that the burrowers leave behind after they've emerged from below. Petty shoots those holes from a bird's eye view, looking down from high above, which gives the familiar terrain an alien-like quality. Sadly, Petty's post borrowers filmography is a bit of a mixed bag, but on the strength of his first four features, I'll gladly watch anything he directs in the future.
1: I'm glad you brought up The Searchers a couple of times. This is yet more evidence of the sway that John Ford's masterpiece continues to exert over all manners of Westerns, especially in the restaging of that traumatic assault on the family home, and then also the group of men who set off into the wilderness to rescue uh, really, a, a kidnapped woman is the main goal in, in this one, only to find out that, uh, one, the woman is not savable, and two, the kidnappers are completely alien, <laughs> even more alien than Indians. A lot of criticism I've read of this film you know, praised the, the seamless blending of Western and horror. And I think this film manages that balance better than most, in fact, Better than nearly every Western. It'd be hard to find another one, film that that feels so authentically Western, but also manages to incorporate horror elements. You mentioned the bird's eye view shots, which I love, despite the fact that this film takes place largely outdoors. It manages to achieve a remarkably claustrophobic quality. And I think that's because of this really clever alternation between those bird's eye shots that you mentioned, but then also a lot of ground level camera work that either gives us the perspective of the burrowers or suggests their, their presence or recent presence. It's this kind of sandwiching effect where you get the sense that the characters are increasingly being uh, wedged on all sides. And so I, I really. Like almost everything about this movie. Watching it though, it's difficult not to think about a somewhat more recent horror western about a group of men setting out to rescue a kidnapped woman. And that, of course, is Bone Tomahawk, a film that is much more famous and probably did a lot more for its director than did the burrowers.
0: Do you have any thoughts on possible connections or relationships between the two movies? No, but you're right. They they really do work on off of the same template in a lot of ways. There's even a hint here. I mean, we don't learn too much about the burrowers themselves, whether they're a completely different species or how they develop. We learn a little bit about what their eating habits used to be before the whites encroached on their space. But I feel like Petty hints that they might have been people at one point. Their bodies just look sort of twistedly human. So when I think about that compared to Bone Tomahawk, it's like both of the threats are, are people who've gone underground and have reverted back to a primitive state or a, or devolved somehow. And they both sort of work off the same template, but I really prefer this take on that template. Now, your point about the
1: the burrowers or the threat is is an interesting one. I think it's to the film's benefit that we don't learn too much about them, other than again those eating habits. But the suggestion that they're perhaps one of the original inhabitants of North America or or something like that—that that they aren't an Indian tribe—is in some ways less, to use an academic word, uh, problematic than a film like Boam Tomahawk*, which you know suggests that there are Indians and then there are savage Indians. Out there. But, but if, of course that film's director is, uh, I guess his thing is to, to court a kind of racial controversy. That, that's kind of his modus operandi for better or worse. So I, uh, I have to think more about which film I prefer. I think Bone Tomahawk kind of does a, a Bud Bedeker type thing in, in some places with its characters and the long sort of reflective dialogue that they have. Whereas this film is maybe more, I don't know if it's more forward or, or Anthony Mann, I'd have to think a little bit about it, but it's certainly a, a film that both fans of the western and fans of the horror genre should seek out immediately. What do you think about the Indian depiction here? Yeah, I'm interested in your take on that. I, I thought it was very sensitive and interesting in the way that we get the difference, particularly the difference of the Mohawk tribe. Right, that there are there are different Indians who are. Uh, at odds with one another, we get the white man who knows Indians whose grasp of languages is good, but not great. So he's an imperfect translator. You know, the, the really powerful scene is where the Mohawks are saying a word that sounds like little fish. And then they ultimately realize the word that they're using is bait. I, I really like that moment a lot. Just that realization.
0: You're right. Language plays a big role here, uh, which is kind of. Interesting, the Indians communicating with them becomes all important if you're going to survive the night
1: well that's really the message of the movie that the the heroes of the movie, for what it's worth, are the ones who are actually willing to engage in some kind of dialogue with their ostensible enemies in order to survive so that the group can survive and that is sharply contrasted with the American military who is completely uninterested in communicating with anyone and is out there to impose a particular view of the world on anything that they come across.
0: Indians, they killed. They took Marianne, took the whole family. What kind of weapon makes a wound like that? We'll find them. It's like you find yourself a hole in the ground there, Will. What do you think, Cowboy?
1: I don't know. There's another right there.
0: This is something we ain't
1: seen before. Who takes men and horses and leaves the valuables to rot?
0: up. Well, he says another tribe. Miners. He didn't say miners. He used the word for when animals dig. Burrow maybe Why would they bury her alive? I don't know. You hear that? Okay, Andrew, and what is your last horror western? My final
1: film for this episode is Grim Prairie Tales. This movie was written and directed by Wayne Co. It's his directorial debut. He was a poster artist for Universal before this point. And the movie was released in 1990. The film stars Brad Dourif as Farley Deeds, a clerk en route to Florida on horseback to see his wife and her ailing mother. Making camp one evening on the open prairie, he's joined by Morrison, a bounty hunter, played by James Earl Jones. Morrison is transporting a scalped corpse on his horse, which establishes the requisite mood of foreboding. Over the course of the evening, the pair swap four spooky stories around the campfire. A tale of a callous cowboy who desecrates an Indian burial ground. A young man who comes to the aid of a pregnant woman he finds roaming the plains alone. A settler family whose patriarch harbors a dark secret. And, in the longest and most elaborate tale of the four, a gunslinger takes part in a gruesome showdown that ends up haunting him long afterward. After each tale is told, Deeds and Morrison converse on its merits. Like Ghost Town, Grim Prairie Tales did most of its business on VHS – Its striking box art of deeds seated at the campfire with the face of Morrison laughing maniacally in the sky above him, coupled with the names of its two lead genre icons, enticed many a blockbuster patron to hit the trail to terror, as the tagline put it. Grim Prairie Tales was released near the end of a cycle of horror anthologies in the 1980s and early 90s that included Creepshow and Creepshow 2, Twilight Zone the movie, Cat's Eye, and Tales from the Dark Side. But despite this context and the film's clear marketing as a horror movie, at least on home video, the horrors of Grim Prairie Tale are relatively mild. The tone throughout is less terror than a kind of wry amusement as the film offers an ironic commentary on the genre. Each story is, after all, about a conventional Western male archetype getting a comeuppance of some kind. In recent years, Coe has spoken at length in several interviews about how the movie is something of a feminist critique of the Western, and of how women viewers were those who responded most positively to the movie. Whatever Coe's intentions, though, the main attraction of Grim Prairie Tales isn't the tales, But the tellers. The movie devotes ample time to Deeds and Morrison's interchanges, and Duroff and Jones prove to be a well matched pair. It's everything that you could hope for if Chucky and Darth Vader were to meet on the American prairie. Grim Prairie Tales has never been officially released on anything other than VHS, to my knowledge, and I'm surprised that a company like Shout Factory, who we mentioned earlier, hasn't put together a release of the film. Let's hope that they do and
0: ask us to participate. I really love this movie. I was so happy when you said you were going to choose it. It's like you said, it's perhaps the only horror anthology where the wraparound segment is so much more memorable than the actual stories. Normally in these kind of anthologies, the wraparound is just an excuse to get to the story. And they're usually the most simplistic part of the film. And here, this is the memory that I am I come away with. It's the two of those men talking to each other. And what's really cool about those scenes is that it develops over time. They have an actual relationship. I think the first time I saw it, I was worried that it was just going to be the same note hit over and over again with Brad Dourif being kind of complaining all the time and James Earl Jones just hamming it up. But Brad Dourif starts to like James Earl Jones' character, and the two men become sort of simpatico with each other. It's It's really a, a cool relationship that develops, like a one-act drama.
1: That's right. The sympathy that develops is actually pretty moving. And Morrison has this, you know, bit where he has to take a swig from his flask before he's able to conjure up a particular tale. And there's the suggestion that it's, it's maybe actually kind of physically painful for him. So before he tells the last tale, which he feels compelled to tell because Deeds has essentially one upped him, there's this genuine kind of concern on Deeds's part you know, don't do it, Morrison, don't do it, but he ultimately does it. And and then, you know, ultimately the the wraparound stories, as you called it, really becomes the the fifth of the Grim Prairie Tales as there's this really kind of amusing punchline with the corpse that Morrison is is taking to the nearest uh, law enforcement officer, let's say.
0: It has to be said, Jones' monologues throughout this film are awesome. Uh, The way he punctuates every line with the spit tobacco – and he lets he does that great thing I love with actors like him, where he, he uses the costume in such wonderful ways. I mean, his costume is great, this giant fur parka thing that he's wearing. He just loses himself in this pure character role. He's very comical and oddly creepy, but it's, just, it's a great performance. Like, it's just the perfect character role.
1: Well, uh, as you know, I'm a great fan of Conan the Barbarian. So any movie where James Earl Jones appears in a long flowing wig is a sign of quality.
0: The the story I think that strikes me the the hardest is that third one, the one that Brad Duriff delivers. It's such a an odd unexpected story. It's interesting that it's so much more complex than the other ones emotionally anyway. It's this deeply disturbing family drama that feels less like something Stephen King might write and something Joyce Carol Oates might write.
1: Yeah, it's the only of the 3 that doesn't involve any kind of supernatural element. And I, I think the way that it's, it's followed up with the the kind of the interstitial play between Deeds and Morrison is actually quite good because, you know, Deeds' story concerns, you know, what, what is essentially a lynching. So there's this kind of disturbing racial component to it. And the film never makes anything of the racial dynamic between Deeds and Morrison, but there's, there's a a palpable suggestion that part of the impact of the story on somebody like Morrison is that unsaid part of it. And, you know, he, he comes away, you know, first quite moved and and Jones is really good here. And, and, but then animated and motivated to tell a a better story, which is an even uh, kind of a a deeper dive into the realm of the supernatural in many respects than some of the other ones, you know, so much so that it involves an animated sequence in, in that fourth, segment. So it it certainly does stand out in many ways, not only as the only story that the Deeds tells, but also for all the other th- reasons we've said.
0: Now I don't know if you've seen this other horror Western anthology that came up the next year called Into the Badlands with Bruce Dern as a gunslinger who tells a bunch of stories. No. I think there are three in that one. I no, can't say it's, that I have. It's worth checking out to compare the two. It's not as memorable. I mean, it's it's – in a lot of ways technically it looks much better but the stories don't have the same resonance and it lacks that wraparound that kind of interesting lovable character is telling you these stories it's uh it's much more conventional and this film is just so much more unusual
1: i'm gonna tell you a story that'll stick to you like an eyeball to a cactus needle there is a grim menace in the west Stalking the weary and traveler. Who are you? Its name is Terror. I know a story. I like it. Horror roams the wilderness. Feel the fear. Ah! Yours is a right one in an all-too-wild west. Grim Prairie Tales, starring James Earl Jones, Brad DeReef, and William Atherton. It's disgusting. It's just sick. Where did you dredge up a story like that? You liked it. (laughs) Grim Prairie Tales. Matt that wraps it up for me what is your third and final horror western
0: my final film is Hard Ride to Hell released on video in 2010 after premiering on the now defunct Spike TV network it was directed by Canadian filmmaker Penelope Boutenhouse, and it stars the great Miguel Farrar of Robocop and Twin Peaks fame as well as Laura Manel from Zack Snyder's Watchmen and Catherine Isabel who's best known for the Ginger Snaps Werewolf Trilogy. Hard Ride to Hell opens in the Texas Badlands circa 1930, where an old Mexican man and his young grandson lead their mule into the small town of Semperterno. But rather than the bustling community that they expect to find, what they discover is a ghost town. That's because a group of devil-worshipping outlaws led by a one-eyed warlock named El Jefe have slaughtered everyone in sight, It seems El Jefe is hell-bent on fathering the next Antichrist, but he hasn't quite found the right mom yet. After carving an unborn fetus from a pregnant woman's belly using a broken tequila bottle as a scalpel, El Jefe and his men ride off on horseback in search of fresh victims. The action then jumps to the present day, where a group of friends are traveling through the same area in a Winnebago. As night falls, they encounter the immortal El Jefe and his band of supernatural outlaws, who've now traded their horses in for motorcycles. Aided by a resourceful traveling knife salesman, the friends battle the unkillable bikers and eventually make their final stand back in Semperterno, where the story began. Now, so far i failed to mention the film's writers, and that's because, well, one of them is me. Hard Ride to Hell was the first spec script that I wrote with my then-writing partner, David Rosiak. We spent about a year writing it, and we were thrilled when it was optioned by a production company that was producing some really cool stuff for television. After that, we were hired to write a whole slew of genre movies for various cable networks, and curiously enough, although Hardwired was the first script that we sold, it was also the last one to get made, but hey, better late than never. The film was our love letter to the drive-in movies that we grew up watching as kids. David was raised in Texas, so naturally we set the story there. The actual plot of the film was a combination of ideas that we both had been developing on our own, and when we finally mashed them together, everything fit perfectly. Now, obviously I'm a little biased when it comes to Hard Ride to Hell, but I have to say, I'm really proud of this movie. Out of the five scripts of ours that were eventually made, this one is definitely my favorite. Miguel Farrar brings a Lee Van Cleef-style swagger to the role of El Jefe, And I think he's just wonderful in the film. It's like he stepped right out of a spaghetti western, which is exactly what we were picturing when we created the character. Apparently, he was a bit of a loose cannon, though, to work with on set, and almost got fired at one point. But really, who cares when he's that good on screen? My favorite performance in the film, however, is delivered by Brent State, who plays traveling salesman Bob Weaver. State is just awesome in this film. We wrote the character as a John Carpenter-style laconic hero who's part Snake Plissken, part Jack Crow, and State captured that beautifully. He reminds me of a little bit of Richard Widmark crossed with Steve McQueen, and watching him slice and dice the bad guys, or improvise a Molotov cocktail using a bottle of Jack Daniels and a tampon, honestly, I just get a little giddy every time he's on screen. The highlight of the film is an extended chase scene that was our version of a classic stagecoach action sequence with a modern twist. Then there's composer Mike Nielsen's Western-inspired score that incorporates the sound of whip cracks as musical punctuation. Between that and the villain's Western costumes, not to mention the ghost town setting, Hard Ride to Hell is the closest that I've come to writing an honest-to-goodness old-school Western. And if that sounds interesting to you... Well, it's currently available to stream for free on Amazon Prime. So happy Halloween.
1: This was the first of your movies that I saw um, shortly after we met in, I guess it was 2015, you gave me a DVD copy, which was an incredibly generous uh, and kind thing to do, which I, I really appreciate. So I've watched this film a number of times since then, and I uh, have, of course, been egging us on to to deal with this film the podcast. So I'm glad we're we're finally getting to it. As I said, it's it's my favorite of your movies and it's probably the best. And I hope this gets more people to see it because it is a it is just a, a great fun movie. It looks good. Uh the pacing is great. Uh the performances are with a couple of exceptions, which we don't need to get into, uh really good. Miguel Ferrer, as you said, does bring the requisite Lee Van Cleef quality to the film. Brent State is amazing as Bob. His scenes are perfect. I, I especially love and his interactions with the waitress. Those are very John Carpenter in the way that he rebuffs her advances in a kind of playful fashion. I, I think that's just wonderful. And then also the the performances of an incredibly capable cast – of Canadian actors, who many of whom will be familiar from uh, their roles on television series, and then also in some Canadian horror movies, uh, Catherine Isabel from Ginger Snaps, as you mentioned, probably being the most famous in some respects. They're they're just great, and they all have great dialogue to work with. They're they're sympathetic, believable characters. the The question. I suppose that uh, I need to ask, I've been meaning to ask, I've never asked you, and you referenced this, is the Whiskey Tampon Molotov Cocktail. Whose idea was that? This is a cinema first. This is where it all starts.
0: That was all David. The the cocktail, the Molotov cocktail with the tampon was something he came up with, and man, was I happy with that. So that's ac- it's a- actually in the script, right? It is. Okay. It is. It's in there. And the, the editing in that scene is so perfect because it comes, the bottle comes rolling through and then the tampons come roll and it pauses on him just long enough. So you can see the, the wheels turn in his head and he gets this little smirk on his face. Like this will work. And after he throws it out the door of the speeding Winnebago and it lights a biker on fire, that's the coolest moment right there when one of the characters turns to him and says, who are you? And he's just got this smile on his face. I think we wrote in the script, after he throws it out, you can see on his face, he's loving every minute of this scene. So, I mean, kudos to Brent State for really bringing it.
1: Uh, Maybe just a question about the development of the movie, because uh, the director, Penelope Butenhouse, uh, mm-hmm. has a has a writing credit as well. So at what point did she get involved and, and what did she bring to the, the project after, um, after you and David had worked on it for a year?
0: That's a little bit controversial for us. What happened was David and I wrote the script and it was optioned and then we didn't hear anything about it for the, a few years. We just kept writing for the same company, doing these TV movies. And then a few years later, I think David was Googling something and – a notice of Hard Ride to Hell was about to come out on video. They never let us know that it had been made. They weren't contractually obligated to do that because they had already bought the script. So we were super excited to find out that a movie of ours had actually been made uh, that we didn't think had existed. So we contacted the producers and we said, hey, are we still credited on this thing? Because we had no clue if they rewrote it. And they said, oh yeah, you are, but so is the director. And when we saw the film almost nothing is changed. Nothing's added. The only thing that happened was there was another person in the Winnebago, another character who got killed at some point, And Penelope sort of gave all of that character's dialogue to other characters and spread it out. I think she trimmed a few things like the motorcycle gang also had a bunch of feral children with them that had <laughs> razor blades glued to their fingers. In addition to the dogs? Were- Oh yeah, in addition to the dogs, okay. they were on leashes and, um, <laughs> it was right out of Road Warrior. We had yeah. a feral, ki- a feral kids. She cut all of those for obvious reasons. Sure. Um, there was a whole climax in the church where in our version, the church had this massive bell tower and somebody goes up and falls. The bell comes crashing down with them on top of it. It was a much bigger thing. Uh, at one point, the Winnebago tips over and that's why they can't drive out of town. So she did some editing on the script. She didn't really add anything new. It's all just cutting stuff that was either too ambitious or too expensive or something. And yet somehow she ended up with a writing credit on there. If if we had been aware at the time that they were making the film, I'm pretty sure we could have brought that to the WGA and said, hey, this is a little sketchy. But we were just so happy that the movie existed and that she did such an awesome job directing it that, you know, sharing the credit is is fine. Yeah,
1: that's a little surprising because by by that point, you know, you had a, as a writer established a pretty solid reputation in this sort of general type of movie. It's kind of, you know, direct-to-video made-for-TV genre picture. So um, it's a little unusual that you wouldn't have been at least notified at some point. But hey. I mean, if the, if the movie gets made and it's, it's still your movie, I guess you can't complain too much.
0: trust in me to serve you. Take this gift and guide my hand to your purpose. The flesh is before you. Give me the power I beg of you, O Mother Babylon. We give you blood, Mother. We give you flesh. Yeah. With every bite, increase our power. Beast! No, no, no. Beast! No, no, no. Well, that about wraps things up for our terrifying horror western episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to
1: How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come
0: back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing (laughs) you.